Welcome to Eco-Activist Journeys. My name is Leah and I'm a third year sustainable development and international relations student at the University of St Andrews. Welcome to my radio show. Today I'm once again um, honoured to be joined with a guest in the studio, Daphne. Daphne Bellary Grant is a corporate governance and sustainability advisor currently engaging with several initiatives nationally and internationally to promote sustainable solutions and implement a strong sustainability strategy according to the UN SDGs. She was the co-founder of the Director of Due Diligence and Advisory Services for Risk Management Consultancy, advising international corporate clients and development financial institutions on the political, environmental and reputational risk associated with their activities. Daphne is also University of St. Andrews alumni, the founder of Plastic Free um, St. Andrews campaign and has been instrumental in shaping conversations and initiatives of um, sustainability and sustainable fashion in St. Andrews and yeah today we'll be discussing corporate social responsibility, how to talk about sustainability with corporations, the power of reputational risk, citizens activism and how to create change. Daphne, thank you so much for joining me on air um, for the live radio show today and yeah would you mind starting off by telling us a bit more about how your environmental journey started? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Leah. Thank you so much for the invite. And um, yes, oh, my environmental journey. I recall I was about 12 years old and I was on holiday. I'm from Greece originally, so people are aware of it. And I was on holiday in one of the islands and I realized there was a lot of rubbish on the beach and I couldn't understand why people weren't cleaning after themselves. So I used to run around picking up everybody else's rubbish. My mom was confused because she said, why are you cleaning after people? Um, but that was, I suppose, the, the first point that I started um, appreciating the environment and thinking that we should respect it the same way we respect our homes and we don't mm -hmm. throw rubbish on our floor yeah. sitting in the you know your living room or having something to eat so i couldn't understand why people didn't feel the same way um, about nature and the environment and over the years during my teens now we're talking about early well mid uh, mid 80s and um it was becoming very popular, um, and even through music, a lot of the big names at the time were involved in a lot of environmental initiatives, and I became a member of WWF, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace. I wanted to engage more um, in that sense, and through that, I knew I wanted to study environmental politics or policy, anything in that shape or form. Unfortunately, in Greece, for my first degree, there was not that option. Nothing like that existed. So I did my first degree in languages and linguistics, but I knew postgraduate coming to Britain, that was that was going to be yeah. my interest, and which is what I did coming here to St. Andrews, was concentrating on environmental politics as part of the International Relations Department. Yeah, it's, it's actually such a, an honor now, if you, if, especially if I look, that I can like study something like sustainable development because just a few like, years ago that didn't exist. And even now, like, I mean, there's so many new courses and things that are coming up exactly. in that field. So it's really exciting. And the good thing I think about nowadays, which you didn't have probably my time, <laughs> making me sound old, um, is the fact that you have a lot more multidisciplinary uh, approaches and you have courses that join various departments and schools yeah. together, which I find is essential. Yeah, 
I think that like interdisciplinary approach and also the fact that you can choose, especially in St Andrews, you can choose so many different subjects you can take in your first, first year, like many different courses. Like I did geography for a while, I did a semester of anthropology, obviously IR and SD and it's just that view of like getting that whole rounded view. And I think what I'd like to see especially more, which I think will happen in years to come as well, is that in every like aspect because whatever career I think any of us go into you know sustainability will play an aspect in it so seeing how that will actually be almost incorporated in whatever you study at some point yeah um, so. I think that has to be yeah. essential yeah so then how did you get into like working uh, with sustainability advice um, going into sustainability advising and working with like some of these like big companies corporates um, after leaving St Andrews, I um, actually set up my own business with um, another <laughs> alumnus of, of St Andrews. Um, my goal at the time was I wanted to change the world, as I'm sure a lot of fellow students uh, and you yourself <laughs> would be feeling. But I wanted to make an impact that I didn't see that um, getting a degree was enough. And I wasn't thinking of, oh, I want to have a, a successful career, as in make money. Mm -hmm. For me, what was important is actually making a difference. Um, so I started working with... Um, pro bono initially for various NGOs and various groups that were trying to promote sustainability and environmental initiatives. Um, initially at conflict zones in countries uh, emerging, what we call now emerging and frontier markets. And through that, I slowly became engaged with uh, governments. So I was invited to advise various governments on that role, in addition to general the political risk environment in emerging and frontier markets. And it was that period of time, it was a few years when, in my mind, I realized that neither NGOs nor governments are the ones who are in control of policies, mm -hmm. changes, and major strategies. It's actually the corporates. And that's what got me concentrating as my main client base, as my audience, the corporate community, so like the business community. Um, they tend to be the first ones in when it comes to conflict zones or emerging markets, and they're the ones who shape what the governments will eventually do uh, in terms of regulation and um, legislation. Yeah, I know. I remember when I talked to you um, last week about this, or was it the week before, I can't remember, mm -hmm. but then you, you also said that, you know, actually corporations are one of the, or not, if not the most important actors in environmental policy. So, you know, why, like, how, how come is that, really? Um, the most, I think that came out of the fact that while everybody thinks that governments are the ones to define how policies and the initiatives that take control, they're actually defined by what the business community tells them to do. Mm. Um, governments are strong as long as the people with the money, the investors, yeah. tell them to be strong and concentrate in the areas that they're interested in. Um, and it's not something that's obvious because when I started working... Um, I honestly uh, felt that, oh, you know, engaging with the governments, I'm actually influencing mm -hmm. them. So I'm making a positive impact if I'm actually able to change their policies. And it was through that journey that I realized, actually, no, it's the corporates I need to influence and try and have an impact mm -hmm. on. Because if they change their attitude, they become more sustainable, more responsible, because for me, that's the main word, uh, then they're the ones who then 
implement the changes within yeah. government. Is that interesting? Because I feel like it's one of those things that is still not discussed or known that well. Because everyone's always like, "Oh, it's the government," but there's much more to what needs to change in our society. Obviously, there's just a lot of money behind what the current system is, and changing that will mean, you know, changing and looking at the way how corporations and how our economic system works um, to a large degree. So. Exactly, because I think what needs to change is the business community. They're the ones who will set the future line of what, mm. you know, independent governments will do. Um, but it's the investors. They tend to be the first ones in, in any, if you think of uh, emerging and frontier markets, you know, they're the ones who go in first, whether it's infrastructure, extractives industry, telecoms, they will set up um, a system where then economic development and economic growth will develop for that specific country. And the government of that country will then be influenced and impacted of what these companies want. What is their priority? Obviously, you know, as a corporate, the priority is always profits. You know, we can't, we can't get yeah, away from yeah. that. And it's a reality. And, and that's why they exist, to make money. Uh, but it's also understanding that with that comes a responsibility. And your responsibility is beyond the responsibility you have to your shareholders to make them profit. You also have a responsibility to the community, to the country in which you operate, to the government with which you hopefully collaborate, and all the other stakeholders involved in the process. Um, from my perspective, and I've always been a, an avid advocate of the view, is it's all about collaboration. But it's also about accepting the fact that everyone is equal in terms of the stakeholders. So we all carry the same responsibility, whether you're a government, you're an NGO, you're an IO, you're a corporate. So engaging and creating a, a constructive dialogue within all the stakeholders, that is the priority. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way you get to a solution and the way forward. Yeah, what I've found really interesting through researching this as well the last few years, which really actually when in our courses as well, uh, I've read quite a few articles talking about um, corporate sustainability and how in a way it can be described as a myth as well because it's because corporations, like, their main aim is to make profit and their main aim is to create shareholder value. Um, and then to what extent can you, like, really, can they really say, oh, corporate sustainability is more as an add-on in many mm -hmm. cases as sort of like a marketing strategy or PR mm -hmm. campaign, um, which will get dropped if profits fall and which will, uh, yeah, which won't be taken on to that same extent. Um, and I, I guess, I don't know, maybe what what do you think in terms of how can we counter that sort of, that difficulty yeah. within the corporate world. And I think the problem, and like you, as you pointed out, the problem really lies on the fact that corporate social responsibility has been treated as an add-on. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk into large corporates, and if we've seen that over the past two, three decades, when CSR became mm -hmm. the term, and everybody was saying, oh, yeah, look at us, we're sustainable, we have a CSR report, um, you can see that on our website. Uh, for me... I was quite hesitant because obviously a lot of that was a bit of a facade mm -hmm. um, showcase that we have a CSR policy, but we don't actually incorporate in our own business strategy. And that has been the attitude from a large number of corporates. We, I'm not going to deny that mm -hmm. there's a lot of corporates who see that, oh, 
just stick it there under the PR, like you said, or under the marketing uh, department, but it's not really core of what we do. But on the other hand, you have a lot of corporates who realize that if they don't incorporate sustainability as part of the core business strategy, they will not have longevity within their own industry. And that is probably the difference between an entity, a corporate, who's there <clears throat> for the long term, as opposed to the ones who want to make the quick money and then get out. Um, I've, I've seen that with a lot of uh, companies and businesses who've been around for decades. They want to ensure that they're still around for you know the same amount of time, if not longer. So it's in their interest to ensure that they provide um, a very positive input to all their stakeholders, but the st shareholders as well in the community and the countries in which they operate. Um, at the same time, also, I think there's a realization which is becoming more and more obvious the past decade, I would say the last 10 years, mm -hmm. um, the fact that reputation, you know, reputation is integral to your business. Yeah. Um, and often when I used to talk to clients, I never used the term sustainability because, you know, I knew that it would probably turn off a lot of people by saying, oh, you know, you're just wishy-washy, you know, those tree-hugging people um, care about the environment. Uh, but if you present it to them on the basis that actually it's about protecting your reputation, um, then they see it differently. I mean, I love Warren Buffett's quote, um, what he said about the fact that it takes 20 years to build a reputation, but only five minutes to lose it. Yeah. And that is very much the reality. And for a lot of corporates, that is the priority. And that's where we've seen the change with many of them um, accepting the fact that we need to protect our reputation. And if that means having a strong CSR or ESG or sustainability, whatever term you want to use to highlight that element of the business, then that's the way forward. Um, so there is a shift, and I think it's, it's about time, <laughs> but there is definitely a strong shift towards uh, making CSR or, again, whatever term you want to use, sustainability, part of the core of your business. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, it's complicated as well because I know you, if you see these big businesses, it sometimes can feel like, well, what can we mm -hmm. really do even if mm, they decide to decide to honor like their profit or their commitment over their supposed sustainability focus or um, plan? And then there's a big question around like, well, what can we do if something like that mm -hmm. happens if they have so much... And many of these massive corporations have a lot of money and power. You know, what can as citizens do? But I think reputation has, in some instances, shown that it's a it's a core part of. You know, if a business doesn't have is reputation at risk, I think maybe you can explain more. Is that really have does that really have an effect on on its on its strategy mm -hmm. or on its um, existence? Oh yeah, definitely. I think even the skeptics. Uh, in the past who thought that, oh, my business, you know, I can survive no matter what, they realized that if their reputation gets impacted, you know, it is, it's the end of the line for a lot of them. A uh, good example in the 90s was Nike. I mean, Nike was the golden child um, in the, within its industry as a retailer for sports. Um, and then the whole scandal about child labor came mm -hmm. out. And it took, them, it took them almost 10 years to recover from that. 
And I don't think they've fully recovered because they will never be the number one brand at the level they were prior to the to yeah. that incident. And that shows clearly how reputation is integral mm. to the success of your business. Um, and the realization that, you know, again, if you lose it, it takes a very, very, very long time to to be able to regain the respect from the consumer, from the industry, from from everyone. Um, the other thing I think a lot of people don't realize, and maybe I should raise at this point, is the fact that we're talking about corporates. Corporates, at the end of the day, they're not this big, massive, impersonal entity. You know, the the monster of you know, as some people may consider, they're run by people. So how a corporate functions and operates within its space, it's really defined by how the senior management team allows it to, to, to run and operate. So if you have a group of people who are really switched on in terms of sustainability, are aware of the risks, are aware of how for, where they want their, their entity to, to move towards, then you're going to have a very, what I call, a green business, you know, a sustainable business. And it's the ones that we see that the lagging behind in terms of sustainability are the ones who tend to be defined by individuals who have a much more, let's say, traditional, um, I don't want to say narrow-minded approach, but, you know, in, a, in some ways it is, uh, where they don't consider that sustainability is part of, of the success of their business. And that's that's where you see the difference. Um, and it's it's people like that that eventually need to implement these changes as the core of the executive team, but also have the ability to to pass on these changes from middle level to lower level to your you know the low level employee. Now, when you're dealing with an entity who may have fifty, a hundred thousand employees, it's people might think it's very hard. But it can be done. It's not impossible. I've seen it happen. Um, it takes time. I mean, that's the thing we have to keep remembering, that things don't change overnight. But the average time, actually, um, I have noted is eight years. From the moment you decide, as a CEO of a company, to go completely sustainable, you can do it within eight years. That's the average time. Um, we can do it quicker. <laughs> so we definitely need all of these big corporations stepping on that exactly. decision right now. Exactly. So, that, you know. um, so it doesn't happen overnight. And and I think that's a, a, a good reflection also in terms of how um, the public perceives them and as, as a consumer. Um, a good example I would give you with all the, the plastic campaign, mm -hmm. uh, the initiative I've been involved in over the past year um, or so. Um, a lot of people come to me and say, oh, you know, can you believe it? Tesco hasn't done this. They haven't removed, you know, plastic bags from this or they haven't taken plastic packaging from the fruit and veg. And I'm trying to kind of tell the people, I say, you don't see it right now, but the changes are taking place. Unfortunately, us as the consumers, you know, we'll probably have to wait for 12 months, 18 months to see that change it's because it's not going to happen immediately from the moment you say you as a consumer complain about it to that entity whether it's Tesco, Sainsbury's or whichever supermarket for them to go through the process of changing all their supply chain it you know it's a lengthy process it doesn't happen overnight um, obviously we're going to see that and I think by the end of 2020 you will see radical changes in how some of our supermarkets are behaving 
Yeah. I think it's actually also really important to notice that within like climate activism mm-hmm. or things like that, that you can't. I think that people get very frustrated if nothing happens, but change just doesn't happen immediately. And I think the worst you can always do is just stop doing something around it because you think, oh, nothing can happen. Because yeah. it's just that you need to continue doing it um, and continue putting pressure because firstly, at first it takes a time for to be listened to and to be considered and to be recognized, okay, this is a concern for a lot of citizens and it's something that is that a company or an organization mm-hmm. must address. And then there's obviously the implementation process and the supply chain that needs to be addressed. So I think it's really important message within activism in general. Yeah, not just within funding corporations mm-hmm. or companies, but like within environmental activism towards like policy or government strategies, I think, as well. Exactly. And that's where you have... Um NGOs and environmental groups and environmental activist groups who play a massive role in keeping that pressure Mm -hmm. going. You need to, you need, you know, it's essential for the corporates. Even you have the corporates who may realize it themselves that, okay, we need to change. We need to become more sustainable. We need to make that the core of our business, which is great. But you also have a massive group of corporates who think, I'm not going to do anything unless I have to. Mm -hmm. And these are, that's where you have activists playing a massive role in continuing and pushing Mm -hmm. those entities towards change, um, as well as putting pressure on governments and, you know, on an international level. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I said earlier, it's all about creating that dialogue and putting equal responsibility to all the stakeholders. And it's important, which I sometimes, and I think over the years, one thing that... Um, I didn't enjoy was the the idea of conflict. Um, a lot of people in the past told me that, oh, you know, you're working with the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, how could you do that if you you claim that you you know you want the best for the environment and you know you're promoting sustainability? I said, well, you need to work with people like that because that's the only you're gonna cha- that's the only way you're yeah. going to change them. Um, the whole confrontational attitude of us and them already creates that negative environment and you're already entering into a dialogue well you know it's not going to (laughs) be constructive Um, and this negativity it needs to be addressed and accept the fact that it's not there is no us and them we're all in the same boat we all need to do something and take responsibility for it and engage and accept that I get where your interests lie you know, I know what you want, so I hope you respect what I want, and sit down, okay, where do we find the common ground? How do we move forward? Um, And that doesn't happen often, unfortunately. Yeah. No, I mean, it's logical if you think about it, because obviously, one-to-one, if you're just confronting someone and saying how horrible they are, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very unlikely they will, like, (laughs) want to listen to you or want to engage in any constructive Mm -hmm. conversation. Um, it's about trying to find ways, you know, how, yes, on the one hand, how do we hold them accountable in the way to say that what they're doing is not okay? Exactly. But then on the other side, how can we create that constructive ground for um, for communication and for trying to find solutions and trying to, f- yeah, find common ground, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, yeah, what's been, what I find quite, quite interesting as well is in the past there used to be a lot with um, corporations had a lot of, 
if they wanted to know something on sustainability, go to an outside sustainability advisor or something mm. like that. But I think I was wondering, in what sense do you think now is it that more companies are taking up like permanent roles for sustainability um, advisors or managers? Um, or in the past, also, was it more that companies would come to ask around sustainability? Would or would you, for example, go to them? Um, how is that sort of process and how is it changing as well? It's definitely changing because prior to, um, I suppose, the last five five years, the, the tendency was that corporates will always go to an outside source, mm-hmm. an external consultant yeah. to get, because they never saw it as part of mm-hmm. their own strategy of their own teams. Uh, but increasingly, and we've seen that with not just large corporates, also with SMEs, what we call the s- small, medium-sized enterprises, uh, where you I- establish a role within the executive team. Now, the ones who do, it su- uh, who do it successfully are the ones who actually put the head of sustainability mm-hmm. on the same level as the head of finance, yeah. head of PR, head of legal. Um, and that's because that's the pretty much this senior executive team. The problem is when you kind of put them on the side, like we were saying earlier, and treat them as an add-on. So it's a lowly role that actually has no influence whatsoever in the decision-making process of the corporate. Um, And it's just there to be uh, checked once in a while and say, okay, have we done anything in terms of sustainability? Or, you know, what what should we put on our website this year (laughs) that makes us look good? Um, I'm hoping that these are becoming the minority as opposed to the majority that it was, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, but, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely changes. The other problem dealing with corporates, and that's probably more obvious with the larger entities, is when you have what we call a um, uh, a crossover. So you have somebody who's been head of finance and then moves across to the role of head of sustainability without actually knowing anything about sustainability. That's the yeah. dangerous ground that unfortunately does still happen. Yeah, and it happens in within companies poli- in oh. politics oh, as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of shift between someone being head of defense and then suddenly being head of the environment, <laughs> and you just look at that and you're like, wait, this just doesn't make mm-hmm. sense, especially if you look at it from like a knowledge perspective. I mean, if you're at university, you're studying a subject mm-hmm. to become an expert in that, and then not just suddenly to, I don't know, it just seems yeah, illogical, you, you know? Um, but yeah, it, yeah, it's difficult. But what would you say, you know, how do you get companies who don't seemingly really care about, like, sustainability to engage with the topic? Um, the way I've always approached it is I go to them and say, well, do you want to make more money? And you want to improve your reputation. That's what they want to hear. And that's what they listen to. Um, I know they don't care about the environment. They're not really fast about promoting sustainable initiatives or practices within their own entity. But what they do care is about increasing their profit margins and improving their current reputation. And if that's the way that gets some response out of them, then I have no issue with the reasons behind why they're doing it as long as they're doing it. And sometimes, you know, in the past, I've always had to mask it under (laughs) a veil of something else. But at the end of the day, it's about ensuring that they behave in a sustainable manner. Um, 
whether they're operating in the country of origin or they're operating in other countries, because there is the additional um, concerns, risks associated with operating in a different country, which is just the political environment, um, the obviously the environmental risks, but also the, the social, the, the relationship that they're going to have with the community. And things that often to me appeared as common sense, it was fascinating to see a lot of corporates really being stumped by the fact that I don't understand why in the Philippines we just, you know, established a presence. You know, everybody hates us. Really? Yes. Yes, They didn't understand. They didn't understand, you know, why, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there was was a very large entity that established a, a presence in the Philippines and they didn't understand why, you know, their employees were being, you know, uh, attacked and they had a very negative reputation and I, I, w- I walked in at the meeting and I said well have you thought about the fact that you haven't employed a single local person in any position you brought expats for the managerial roles you even brought even for the the low the workforce actually is not even nobody's local um, you came in you've you know established a presence through your plant or through your facilities and you know you've impacted massively the community and you haven't thought of doing something in <laughs> to, in, return. In, in return like maybe building a school or a hospital or providing sufficient you know um provisions to your workforce um and they didn't even think about that as an issue and uh, it was fascinating that you know for <laughs> me it was common sense but for them it was like oh I'm, I didn't realize that I had to do these things. I said, well, it's just normal. (laughs) Um, And it's it's going back to what we said earlier about taking responsibility of your actions. If you're going to do something, you know, and then ensure that how your actions are going to impact that space, whether it's a community or a country, then that you do something in return. Yeah. And I think that's also where it becomes so important. I think it's growing a lot lately, especially in, in terms of perception around sustainability, not just being about protecting the environment or, I don't know, preserving something necessarily, but it's so much more in terms of, you know, our life on Earth and what it means to continue operating as, yeah, as humans, but also as corporations and, uh, yeah, as entities in the world, because if we degrade, continue just degrading the land and continue degrading the Earth, it's just... There's no future in that. Um, and as a corporation, you obviously have to think about some sort of long-term plan. Um, and and I think that's why it becomes important, you know, to incorporate things like sustainability. But, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's essential. And you can't ignore the fact that we live in the age of globalization. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going to change. Uh, the way we all operate, we're all interconnected. Um, you can function as an entity um, on its own without having any links with the space in which you operate or the people in which you with with, with which you engage, um, and that's 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 the truth. That's the reality, and it's about ensuring that we maintain these links um, and. Enforcing, not enforcing, maybe not the right word, but ensuring that all members of the community, of the country in which we function, benefit from from your actions as a corporate. 
Yes, definitely. I thought we we're gonna have a short music break, and then uh, we also see. I'll check if there are any questions in the bus box. But also during the music break, people are welcome to ask any questions you might have. And then I want to continue talking a little bit about um, after the music break about how you know that sort of reputational risks that corporations have also give citizens and us a sort of power and a voice to do something. And you know how can we create sort of change on the on the local ground, and but yeah we'll discuss that afterwards. But yes, look, the, forward. <laughs> look forward to it. The the song that um, Daphne chose for us yeah. today is "We Didn't Start the Fire" by Billy Joel. Joel. Do you quickly want to say a little bit more about like why you chose <laughs> is that, it? Or? Well, it's from my time, so it was written nineteen eighty nine, um, and um, for me it reflects the fact that. I don't know if anybody's aware of the song, but he goes through over 110 or 20 major events that took place since from the 1940s to the 1980s to until the year he wrote in 1989. And indicates the fact that the world keeps going, you know, things happen, events happen, and they all almost happen in a circular manner. Um, governments don't have and learn from past mistakes. You know the same mistakes are being repeated over and over again. The environmental issues that were here now, that are here now, were here 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's just a th for me that song showcases that <laughs> we didn't start the fire because the fire has been burning for a very long time. But I think it's about time that we actually put it out. Put on, yes, definitely. <laughs> Okay, wonderful. Let's listen to the song. Yeah, welcome back. Um, we had a really interesting conversation just <laughs> off air, so I'm sorry you missed that, but we'll try and recount a bit of what we said. Um, I think leading off maybe from the song a bit as well, um, what looking at all of the things that have already happened in the past and, and, and realizing, you know, this has been a movement, environmental movement that's been around for such a long time. Like, I mean, a lot of the time it's quite interesting that it's presented as something new. Oh, mm -hmm. this new environmental movement at the time. And you just, I, you know, if you look at the facts, you're like, oh, this, this is not really new at all. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and, and uh, it's quite interesting to see also that people start talking about, oh, there's not enough time to do something now. Where, I just wonder, I'm like, excuse me, there's been so much time already. Exactly. And I think a lot of the, like, what's often been a problem is that it's just been seen as too far out or the goals have been too set, too far out as, oh, let's try and be sustainable for 20 years or that's our goal for, like, some, like, mm -hmm. some certain period that is too far out. And, um, and I think that's sometimes also where I see the problem with long-term climate goals at the moment being set at 2040, 2045, 2050. Because um, it's not the terms of office within many leaders in the world that are in these long-term goals, so then that's not really an immediate concern. Um, and, yeah, I think especially for countries, you know, what can you... How, you know, how for leaders, they're not really going to think about oh, what's going to happen in 20, 30 years, and it's more mentioned. But when we really should be thinking about what's happening, you know, what's happening now, and yeah. how can we set short-term goals? Mm. Um, I think that's the problem because there's a lot of short-termism, um, not only within governments, even within international organizations, which actually I suppose they are defined by the governments mm. that they're members of. Um, going back to your f original point that you were making about mm. 
the these issues, the environmental issues, have been around for a very long mm. time. Um, and I'm always fascinated how everybody's like, oh, look, you know, Greta is doing all this mm -hmm. amazing job, you know, about promoting mm -hmm. climate uh, crisis. As I well, I can remember in 1992 at the Rio summit, there was equally another 12 year old who mm -hmm. did the same similar speech to what Greta is doing now for the same issues. Yeah. Um, so all these things have been happening and have been going on. It's just a case where unfortunately people forget and environmentalism has gone up and down in the history of, yeah. of our planet. Uh, when I started looking at it first, initially as academically, you know, I was doing my, my master's and my PhD, it was about, it was at the height, you know, environmentalism was the thing to do. In the early 90s, yeah. everybody was involved, everybody was doing something, whether it was deforestation in the Amazon, whether it was water scarcity in Central Asia, there was a lot of interest within international organizations. Environmental groups were, I would say, at their height, Greenpeace, WWF, mm -hmm. Friends of the Earth, uh, they were seen uh, serious contenders in the in the global context um, and major stakeholders, um, and then 9/11 happened, and that was the end of environmentalism. It had a great decade, and things were moving on in a very very great <laughs> tra tra trajectory. Um, and then all the attention shifted from environment to terrorism. Mm -hmm. So for the next 20 years, and I think up until Greta revived that through climate crisis, through um, the issues that we've seen the past couple of years, um, environment wasn't really on the top of the agenda. Yeah. So what do you think um, makes this environment, do you think or this environmental movement is different to the, the ones in the past and how do you think you know we, we can utilize that sort of power that we have? I think there's, there's a couple of factors why it is different. The main one being obviously social media. Mm -hmm. um, what people talked about in the early 90s, it was limited accessibility and limited way of putting it out there, whether you read it in a book or a journal or in the news. Uh, but nowadays with social media, I mean, something happens on the other side of the world, people find out about it within five minutes. Mm. So it's a great opportunity to galvanize the communities, to get people interested to doing something and actually creating a strong leadership, yeah. which I think Greta has done very successfully uh, when it comes to, to climate crisis. So the same can apply for other environmental issues. So you can create the same processes and the same interest um, uh, that way. The other reason why this time may be different, could be more, um, we'll, we'll see more action, is the fact that <laughs> the time is approaching that we don't have the luxury of the 40 years we had 40 years ago. <laughs> Things are happening. And yeah. I think no matter how much of a skeptic anybody is, they, can, you, they cannot close their eyes to what is happening mm. around the globe, whether you're looking at the Australian bushfires, uh, the, 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 well, the fires, uh, the deforestation of the Amazon, um, the ocean pollution, the, the radical decrease of our biodiversity. Mm. I mean, thousands of species are, be, are disappearing on a daily basis. Mm. Um, so people can't ignore it anymore. And I think that's the difference. And although in the 90s, we probably had uh, 40, 50 years to do something about it. Now, in 2020, we don't have that much time. Mm -mm. So action is 
imminent. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, you, you think in just looking at it, there's no denial in the fact that we already, it, climate change is already happening. We're already in a climate crisis. Mm. And what we do now really depends how much we escalate that and how much we reach turning points within ecosystems bond which maybe there's no return and bond because I mean there is already a certain amount of CO2 and of methane and other greenhouse gases in the air and that is just being admitted that is having a long that will have a long-term effect um, that is not easily pulled back from and that's already to causing ice to melt and um, yeah causing ecosystem changes and I think that's it's just a reality that we have to face that there is just no time to start to be like, oh, what we're going to do in the next four again, start thinking about, oh, what we're going to do in the next 40 years. We really need to start thinking about long term, yeah, 10 years, five years, but also every year, you know, mm. thinking about what are we going to achieve this year? And that's on every level. That's on the institutional level, on organizational level, um, corporate level, yeah, corporate governments. Exactly, because you don't have the luxury of, let's think about it in three, four decades. Um, and I find it personally frustrating that even today we're still talking about um, timelines of, you know, 2045, oh, yeah. 2050, yeah. 2055. Uh, things don't need that kind of, of, of time to, to mm-hmm. happen. Um, and, you know, it's about being realistic where you need changes in the next five years if yeah. not two or three years, um, yeah. which, you know, they're perfectly feasible. Um, yeah. I mean, it's been done before. If you look at exactly. all of, if the world puts its resources where it wants to achieve something, you know, we've sent people to the moon. We've done so <laughs> many different things that have been truly amazing. But that's because it's been wanted, like the resource has been put where our mouth is really. And I think that's still what's lacking at the moment. Is a lot of people say, oh yeah, environmentalism is something I care about. And, or even, you know, oh, this is something we should consider. Um, but I think a lot more need, pay attention needs to be paid to put the money there where our values and where our, yeah, where our mouth is to support those initiatives that could definitely bring us along the path. Because I think we're, we're definitely already in a, as a society, we're going to change. Whatever happens, something, change is going to happen, you know. It just depends on if it's going to, in what way it's going to happen, exactly. if it's going to happen in a just manner, or if it's going to happen with a lot of social, you know, difficulties. Upheaval. Um, <laughs> upheaval. And, um, I, but now we just need to, we need to speed up that change and we need to see how can we, how can we, through what's happening in the world, create create a better society out of it? Because I think what a lot of environmentalism is about, it's not just about let's protect, but it's actually let's look about how we can restructure how things are working and how can we restructure society that it actually works and functions better in a way that's better for the environment, for the people uh, working in the industries as well. Yeah, and I think the main thing for me is changing mentality. Uh, the problem we've had so far is um, whether it's governments, corporates, individuals, the, the tendency has been to have a reactive approach mm-hmm. to things. Most people say, well, if things go horribly wrong, then we'll deal with it instead of thinking and yeah. creating a preemptive yeah. structure. Let's prepare ourselves. So 
we can avoid something happening or reaching that point of no return in that mm -hmm. sense. Um, and that, that has been, that's a global issue, whether it's governments or, gov uh, or corporates or individuals. The majority of people tend to think like, well, if things go wrong, then we'll, we'll, we'll have a think yeah. about what we do then. Yeah, I think that, that mindset needs to change dramatically in terms of not just being like, oh, something's wrong, we need to do something, mm -hmm. but really how can we ensure that disaster doesn't happen <laughs> rather than just respond yeah. to disaster? Exactly. Um, and, and, and that's the problem. We shouldn't feel that we're just continuously responding to things happening. You know, we, you know, you have to prevent them before happening, before you reach that level, because sometimes it actually it is too late. Um, response to a disaster doesn't always work. Mm. You know, it might, and majority of times, but, you know, we don't want to be in a position where something disastrous mm. happens and we're responding, but actually we haven't solved the problem. Yeah. I mean, I was reading a, a paper which was discussing actually the the money and the finances that would go into solve, like, if climate crisis occur and if uh, more extreme weather events happening, the money that would need to be spent on trying to mitigate and trying to look at like repair like if all of that were put together in terms of the destruction cause and what we'd have to change in terms of like built environment and protecting coastal zone it's like that's more money than currently exists on earth and that's just mind-blowing to think about like the financial figures that if climate crisis like if the climate crisis escalates to such an extent that we just trying to deal with all of the consequences then rather than trying to prevent or like prevent it beforehand then mm. <laughs> there's this just we don't even have enough money to deal with with all of with all of that what will come exactly but also the biggest issue is like we don't know what's going to be like when mm, that yeah. happens um, you don't know in what there's kind of an environment yeah. um, as a society as as uh, as an entity, yeah. how the planet is going to to be reconfigured and, once that happens. And I mean, that's where, you know, predictions are important, because especially scientific prediction, because they give us some sort of understanding of what, what we need to do. Um, but they're not perfect. And there's so many things that, you know, play into into that, especially within what will happen at the current point in time, that it's hard to say, oh, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say that's exactly what will happen because already we're realizing that a lot of the climate, um, the change that is happening is happening a lot faster exactly. than what's been predicted. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes, yeah, a lot more severe. And um, well, In all areas, yeah. you know, everybody's saying there's been an acceleration mm -hmm. of various events that, you know, scientists, have, uh, experts have predicted that weren't going to happen for another 20, 30 years. They're happening now. And that's why the timelines have been pushed forward. Um, and therefore, our response can't be delayed. Mm. It's, you know, it's almost a little bit too little too late. So if we don't act now, if we don't develop a, a solid strategy uh, that takes place in the next decade, um, then we're not going to see the outcome that we're yeah. hoping for. Also on the topic of like finances, you said, you know, investors play a big role in sort of in this as well. Um, maybe you can expand on that. Yeah, because I think people forget, again, talking about large corporates, that large corporates exist 
only with the financial backing mm-hmm. of large yeah. investment entities, whether it is um, investment companies, private investors, funders, or DFIs, development financial institutions. A corporate is not going to function without that financial support. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of responsibility that goes with becoming an inv- or being an investor. We've seen again over recent years there's an, an increasing interest in a lot of investment being what we call ESG investment, environmental, uh, social, and governance uh, related. So sustainability is becoming the core of that investment. But you know, in the bigger scheme of things, that only represents a very small percentage of the overall investment what is given to to corporate entities to operate. And that needs to change. So from my perspective, again, there are an unidentified stakeholder that needs to take responsibility for what they do because (laughs) they are the money. Um, And they need to operate in a much more sustainable manner. Uh, Because if they do that, then inevitably they influence the entities, the businesses, the corporates that they fund to do the same thing. Yeah, I think money and looking at where money flows is very important because in many ways it still does make the world go around, especially the human human world. (laughs) Um, Because if you look at, especially some sort of investment or, or banking, you know, if massive banks wouldn't fund some of the fossil fuel companies, to the extent that they do now, like not just funding what's happening, but funding further exploitation, funding further um, oil and tar sands and, and, you know, all of these really oh, devastating practices, mm-hmm. um, then they, they couldn't exist, they couldn't operate exactly. you know, with that money. But this is also our, you know, collective money on banks. And I think that's maybe also where citizen power comes in again because we can, you know, demand the changes in terms of pulling, divesting, I think, pulling away from banks that have that sort of investment. Um, yeah, but what do, you, what do you think is, like, our citizen power within, within, especially within, you know, the big money and within the massive things that are happening, you know, in the world? Oh, definitely, I think, like, environmental activism consumers people themselves individuals can take a stance Mm. um every day i talk to people and say oh what can i do i'm just an individual i live in a small town in scotland and i say well you can't think that way because everybody if everybody did the same thing then you will see a massive difference Mm. so never question the fact that your individual action has doesn't have a bigger impact Uh, it's the classic, but you know, the domino effect. What somebody does, something small, you know, it flows down the line and becomes something bigger. Um, and it's about, for me, I think it's essential that we work both ways. On the one hand, you have to have individuals, consumers, the public engaging and becoming much more aware of what they want, how they want it, and how they can influence the bigger players. And at the same time, also putting pressure from the top down, the governments, the large corporates, the investors to change things. When you have that, it's like you corner them from both ends, that kind of approach, that's when you see the most effective change. I think you need people both working from 
within yeah. and without, yeah. you know. That's where it becomes important, like you said. Like, it's not about, oh, you're working with, like, the bad guys or whatever. You know, you mm. need to, like, work from within a system can sometimes be more effective than working just from without because you know what's going on, you can understand what's happening and and maybe you have a perspective around, you know, those are also humans and how can, can we relate as humans and find a common ground in, in terms of what can be done and what is feasible. Um, and I think that's where public and individual responsibilities or um, comes change comes in as well. Mm. Because if we as individuals show that we don't want fast fashion brands, we don't want plastic foods, we don't want um, cruelty, you know, animal <coughs> cruelty, then that's that shows that shows the market that that society is ready for that change. Um, and I mean, I mean, within reason, obviously, it's not everyone you know it's not within everyone's capabilities to choose the 100 percent most environmentally friendly option because at the moment i think a big problem is still as well that um those tend to be the more expensive ones yeah the cost but i think people yeah i sometimes i would rather invest in it for example in a piece of clothing that maybe is a bit more expensive now but that can last me for hopefully the rest of my life you know exactly um, so it's a lot of value um, change as well, I think, that and perception around how we see and, and value things. Yeah, so. definitely. And I think that's, again, um, back to the consumer. It's re- rethinking um, about how they, how they consume. Unfortunately, nowadays, overconsumption is <laughs> the pattern. This is It's evident um, throughout globally, you know, all the countries... Um, I suppose for me it's a disease you know overconsumption is not the way forward um but it's how you see it whether it's fashion whether it's like you said plastic food whether it's having a bigger car bigger house bigger everything um but it's also keeping keeping in mind that the little changes that you can make as an individual will translate to something much bigger and I, I still believe that the majority of people feel that they're almost helpless, that they can't influence governments, that they can't change things, that they can't put that kind of pressure, which I think is wrong. We all can. There's yeah. no question about that. And it's, it's how we do it. And whether it's about engaging with our, you know, fellow, with our neighbor, with our fellow students, um, that's when you see the collaboration. That's when one, two, three people coming together become more effective. Yeah, I think that's than a, on our own. That's a very important message and a good, good one to end on as exactly. well. Um, that I think if you start doing something, you know, individually, then you can try and speak to other people and, and escalate. I think that's where collaboration becomes important because you know there's so much opportunity for us to to put together our efforts and to say oh you're doing this i'm doing that you know how can we create something yeah, exactly. that, that come, together. come together yeah. and, and i think that's also something powerful in terms of that you don't feel alone like in the environment movement in, in doing things sometimes it can like especially at the beginning i know it can feel like what i felt when i started out sometimes it felt quite lonely yeah. in terms of no one else was doing that yeah. much and, and I think it's so important to sort of come together and to realize, oh, there are so many people that are doing things and, and in, in 
in your own small way, every one of us can contribute yeah. in some way. Exactly. Um, Effective collaboration. That's that's my motto. And I think that's what <laughs> people on April 20. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Athi. Thank you. It's been a show. pleasure, Leah. Thank you. <laughs> the last song that I'm going to play um, was um, a request from my mom, actually, which is What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, because I think in the end, what a wonderful world we live in and what an opportunity we have to to change to change and to yeah to create something that leaves leaves a legacy for the better i guess so yeah on that note i hope everyone has a wonderful weekend and uh, thank you for tuning in and yeah be kind <laughs>